This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to this panel discussion episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner. We've got a cool panel of West Coast brewers uh, lined up here for a discussion on a subject for this special Tuesday episode of the podcast. The subject is West Coast Pilsner, and joining me are Sam Tierney from the Firestone Walker Propagator Brewhouse. Welcome back, Sam. You've been on the podcast once, and uh, now we've got uh, got you back here for a panel to tap into your brewing expertise. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Really stoked for this. We've got uh, Bob Coons from Highland Park Brewery. Welcome back to the podcast, Bob. Oh, my pleasure. Always excited to be here. Some of your West Coast approach to Pilsner has been uh, in my personal best lists over the years. Excited to talk to you about how you do that. And joining us for the first time on the podcast is Nick Pavlina, co-founder of Humble Sea Brewing Santa Cruz. Welcome to the podcast for the first time, Nick. Yeah, thank you. Stoked to be here. Um, before we get into the conversation, uh, step into the modern era of brewing. AccuBrew presents a game-changing fermentation monitoring system, giving brewers unprecedented real-time insight into yeast health and activity. By simply mounting a sensor to a port, brewers get real-time information through the AccuBrew app, tracking sugar conversion, temperature, and clarity. And just one AccuBrew sensor protects every tank in the event of a glycol system failure. Get your hands on a tool that will help you deliver your best brew every batch, AccuBrew has your back because it was designed for you, the brewer, by brewers. Visit AccuBrew.io today for a no-obligation 90-day trial. Also, this episode is brought to you by CanCraft. We all know how important first impressions are, so put your best can forward by partnering with CanCraft. Offering a full-service packaging experience, CanCraft's design and aluminum specialists are here to support your business from concept through to delivery of ready-to-fill beverage cans. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash cancraft to learn how cancraft can help realize your brand potential. Also, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, G&D Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. G&D's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. G&D Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy-efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Before we kick off this discussion, and because this is a California-focused panel, uh, just indulge me for a second as I continue the long tease for our craft beer and brewing 10th anniversary Brewers Retreat in Santa Rosa, California next May. We've been putting together a pretty incredible lineup of brewers to come out and brew, and folks like Ken Grossman of Sierra Nevada, Matt Brindleson of Firestone Walker, Corey and Karen King of Side Project, Henry and Adriana Nien of uh, Monkish are all on board to brew. And of course, I can, I guess, like let out one more piece of info. Uh, Vinny and Natalie Chalurzo are playing host to the event with brewing sessions and group meals at the Windsor Production Brewery. So if you've ever dreamed of brewing with an all-star lineup of inspirational brewers at an amazing location, just become an all-access subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing now and get first crack at those tickets. I, I'm absolutely thrilled and excited about this and uh, and can't wait. Since we're on the topic of West Coast, let's, uh, let's start talking about some West Coast Pilsner. Um, again, all of you all brew in this style. Whether we can call it a style yet, I don't know. I think uh, um, and we'll talk about the kind of conceptual, philosophical, and semantic argument towards the end of the podcast. But uh, but first, I want to start talking about uh, the kind of initial creative inspiration and what led you all to do this. I know, you know, Sam, from your Welcome to LA beer, which was one of our favorites from last year, Bob, some of your... Uh, you know, hoppy forward, you know, Pilsner beers, uh, you know, have definitely pushed definitions of what people might think of as Pilsner. Um, but let's let's kind of talk about that formative piece there. And uh, maybe you can kick this one off, Bob, uh, talking about what led you down the road of brewing lagers inspired by Pilsner or in a Pilsner style and taking an alternate hopping approach to it. Uh, but then beyond that, figuring out how to make these hops work within the context of that beer yeah absolutely 
Um, I would say we we make a beer called Timbo Pills, probably our most well-known beer. We call it a West Coast Pilsner. Uh, we first made that beer, I think, in 2015. Um, and it was just kind of a happy accident. We were making a cask of beer, which we probably haven't done in four years. Um, and we blended a Pilsner and a West Coast IPA half and half in this cask and then cask conditioned it. And the beer was awesome. And we were super pumped. It was me and our brewer at the time, Tim McDonald, a la Timbo Pills. Um, and we immediately were like, we got to make this as an actual beer. Um, and so, yeah, it was the simple idea of blending those two styles in a cask. And then that became an actual beer. Um, and then it kind of just, we were, okay, how do we figure out how to do that, but do that with a grain bill and hopping and all of that. And we kind of decided that for this style, we wanted to approach it on the hot side, like a Pilsner. So, you know, we were using all sort of like noble uh, leaning hops. Um, we were shooting for maybe lower starting gravity, um, something more drinkable. Um, we were using low alpha hops in the kettle. We were using, you know, German Pilsner malts. Um, and essentially approaching it as a Pilsner on the hot side. And then as kind of a final step, moving towards it, like the IPA or West Coast part of it, um, being on the cold side, dry hopping it like an IPA. Um, and that's kind of the basic initial conception. It was a blending of two styles. How then has that beer evolved because, you know, it's in, in 2015 to now, uh, American craft brewers and our approach to brewing German-inspired lagers or Czech-inspired lagers has certainly shifted, developed, uh, uh, improved, I think we could say in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and as you went down this road and continue to iterate on that beer, which you now have a long path of iteration on, uh what are some of the things that have changed over that and that you have found uh, become some of the core pieces that you need in this and some of the things that uh, have been less uh, necessary in brewing these beers? Uh, I mean, I think for us, the vision was always to have it be a lower ABV, very hoppy beer. And so if you have low ABV, you kind of need to create body and structure to sort of all so that all those dry hops have sort of like balance. Um, so I think that's always been sort of at the core of this beer is it's lower ABV and drinkable, but we build structure in the body to hold on to very heavy hop loads. Um, and so, you know, I think for us as a brewery, we, we typically don't pay attention too much to style guidelines. It's more like a vision and communication with customers so they have clear expectation of what they're getting into. Um, so that's been kind of the challenge is how do you get that body and that weight in the beer to, you know, hold on to, you know, for Timbo, it's like three and a half plus pounds per barrel dry hopping, which is a lot on a, you know, 5.7% ABV beer. Um, so that's been the challenge. It's just a constant tweaking. I mean, for us and all of our beers, we try to stabilize out the recipes, but they're always evolving and developing. Um, we just are kind of tweaking the knobs to improve them as we get better ingredients. We have better access to information, process, equipment, all of that. Um, so I think as our knowledge as a brewery improves, which probably the biggest leaps we've taken is like yeast management and like QAQC type of stuff. So as we've gotten a better handle on that, I think our hop expression has continued to improve if that makes sense we have like cleaner tighter ferments um that lead to brighter fresher hop expressions sure sure sam talk to me about uh, welcome to la uh, this is one of i think it was one of stan Hieronymus's favorite beers of last year um you know as you set out to make a west coast style pilsner inspired lager and i'm going to just add all sorts of you know qualifiers to those terms just to to soften everything um you know what were some of the core features 
you know, as you were defining them, you know, in the design of the beer, um, you know, that just had to be there. What, what are some of the things that you were hanging this on? I think it took a while for us to kind of figure out exactly what we wanted that beer to be. And I was thinking, um, Bob, as you were talking about Timbo, uh, back to, um, an early propagator collaboration that we brewed with you. I think it was Tony Lager, right? Yeah. And yep. I think at the time, maybe we called it an IPL or I, I forget what exactly it was as far as like what we put on the menu as a draft only beer that we did probably 2017, maybe I forget what, when that was. Um, but yeah, obviously, you know, um, it's something that we've been interested in a while and kind of in small bits, we're brewing different one-offs and we had brewed some India pale lager before, but I think we were just using that as the established name while we were trying to make kind of lighter, more Pilsner like beers. Um, so like we did, um, Bevo, which was the collaboration with Beavertown. And, um, you know, that was like kind of a step in that direction where it was a little bit higher in alcohol. It was up in the six range. Um, but we otherwise essentially approached it like a Pilsner. I think it was essentially all Pilsner malt, uh, maybe a little bit of Carafoam or something like that. And then, um, you know, a heavy kind of, you know, new world dry hop. Um, so then when I came down here in 2019 and started working on a new beer along those lines, that was kind of one of the first projects that I started out on, um, after I switched to this brewery and it was really, yeah, one of those things where it started really low ABV. So I think the first batch was four and a half. And the idea was to make this like really sessionable kind of like, you know, our next like session IPA, but we wanted it more along like a Pilsner lager line and kind of see where that went that um we'd been trying to switch over to lager fermentation for a a lighter hoppy beer for a while we tried easy jack with lager yeast and we weren't completely happy how that came out um so we i think we realized that we needed to kind of go back to the drawing board and instead of using what was you know a, a session ipa approach from you know um almost 10 years ago now back when that beer was first conceived um we needed a little bit of a fresher approach and i think that um you know, what, what Bob was doing at the time was definitely something we looked at and said, okay, that's a, a very interesting approach. We should maybe shift a little bit more toward that. Um, so yeah, it, you know, the ABV went up after the first batch. Um, you know, we went more towards six or like five, nine, because I thought, you know, initially that first dry hop was really heavy. We were doing, you know, big West coast dry hop and it was kind of overwhelming a four and a half percent beer. It was kind of hard to find the balance. And I think, um, especially with lager fermentation, you don't have the esters to kind of fill out the profile. So you have to be a little bit careful about how you balance it and you find that balance in other ways. Um, and then, yeah, we, we just played around with it for another year, brewed a bunch of different batches, found a hop combo we like. And then, um, you know, we kind of started pairing back the malt bill too. And this was a kind of insight Matt had where he thought that, you know, we were putting in a few specialty malts to try to kind of round things out. And that was kind of a holdover from when it was a lower ABV beer. And I was looking for body. So there was a lot of like Carahel, some Carafoam um, to really kind of boost up the Pilsner malt. But then we found, you know, as you increase the alcohol, that brings its own balance. So we were able to kind of find a happy middle ground. And then um, we decided to kind of go leaner in the end and shifted back to all Pilsner. And we shifted to a domestic Pilsner that we liked. And that's kind of where the beer ended up um, when we finally kind of released it in distro last year. Um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you find balance in different ways, like, Bob was saying, um, you have to make sure that if you have a heavy hop load in a lighter Pilsner like beer, that you're not letting it be completely overwhelmed because if the beer is completely out of balance, it's just not going to hit that drinkability factor that you need. And, um, and for us, I think, yeah, it's like, you know, low alpha hops in the boil, um, not too much bitterness, making sure the bitterness is really well controlled. And then, um, you know, not going too heavy on the dry hop. So I think we, we settled on a formula that, that is a little, um, more along the lines of, you know, a pound and a half, like somewhere between a pound and a pound and a half, uh, per barrel dry hop and not going too heavy. And, um, and so, you know, a little more Pilsner like perhaps. And so I, I think within, you know, if you want to broadly conceive this as, as a style that you can point to distinctly, um, you know, there's definitely room for pushing up against the upper bound, which would be almost like, you know, baby IPA, almost touching six and a, a bigger body beer. And then on the lower end, um, almost like a more traditional German Pilsner body around, you know, 5%. And, um, and there's a lot of room in that, in that spectrum, I think. Sure. I want to come back to that malt question next, but, uh, Nick, why don't you talk to me about, um, 
how your you know formulation of this uh, you know kind of West Coast Pilsner approach has taken shape for you? Are, are there some specific pieces that are kind of core to the way that you all do it? Yeah, I mean, similar to to Bob and Sam. Um, I mean, for people who know me, uh, Pilsner just as a whole is kind of my favorite style to brew and to drink. Um, two of our core Pilsners are named after my daughters. Penelope Pilsners are traditional German pills and Paisley pills. It's our Italian Pilsner. So um, when we started kind of gearing towards experimenting with this West Coast Pilsner style, um, we initially approached it kind of from a, a German Pilsner standpoint initially. So we are using 100% uh, German malt, noble hops in the kettle, and then kind of playing around with dry hops with some um, you know, more newer school hops. And over the years, that's shifted um, quite a bit. We still approach it um, similar to what Bob was mentioning, hot side like a Pilsner. We do um, step mashes to kind of highlight you know, certain enzyme activities. Um, we cut back the, the German Pilsner malt quite a bit and kind of blend in some two row. Um, more recently switched over to domestic Pilsner, which we like a lot. And uh, also kind of um, instead of, you know, a German Pilsner being a little bit lower final gravity, um, you know, low fives, we approach it more like a kind of a West Coast pale ale. Uh, a little bit higher original gravity, a little bit higher final gravity, get that body to kind of support the hops. And um, dry hopping, we've we've been toning it down quite a bit. We initially were in the three pounds per barrel, but now we're kind of down in the, the one to one and a half. We just like that hop expression better. It just doesn't oversaturate the beer. And um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. Well, let's talk about the question of, of malt here. You all mentioned now, or, or I hear a common thread of moving towards domestic Pilsner malt away from, uh, you know, as, as German Pilsner malt. Um, you know, Sam, you mentioned pulling back, uh, you know, from some of the more bodybuilding malts. Um, talk to me about this malt evolution. Now, of course, we've got this in, such an interesting kind of continuum of beer style here. We now have cold IPA, which several of you are also making, um, which is definitely shifting even more towards that pure IPA style West Coast you know, approach. Um, you also mentioned IPL, you know, which of course seems to have a little more of a historical context that differentiates it from this beer. There certainly will be those critics that will claim that this is just IPL and a different kind of branding. We can talk about that theoretically later on, um, you know. But in terms of approaching West Coast. Pilsner or a wet taking this West Coast approach to Pilsner. Um, where do you find yourself with malt these days in terms of domestic Pilsner? What do you think the difference is between Pilsner malts in the finished beers that you are, you know, tasting and, and uh, evaluating from yourselves? And, uh, you know, what are some of the differences, you know, for you, Nick, with how adding some Turo into the mix helps? give it a character that supports the, that kind of hop character. Maybe kick it off for me first, Sam, talk about, uh, you know, that kind of malt approach and that malt evolution. When we started working on this, it was mostly German Pilsner malt. And then, um, we did eventually switch, uh, to actually it's a, a Canadian malt, Gambrinus. And, um, you know, that was something that we had brought in and, you know, from our perspective, I think, you know, um, we're a much larger brewery than these other two guys. So we have some other considerations, I think, you know, as far as like bulk availability, stuff like that. So we were pulling in Gambrinus um, that we were using in Firestone Lager and that we use in 805 Cerveza. And we were really liking that malt, super pale color. It's just really clean, but has a nice kind of um, grassy Pilsner quality to it. It's not as robust as like, say, a Wireman. Um, you're not going to get as much body and richness in the malt character. It's a little leaner. It's higher enzyme. You have to mash it a little bit differently. You're overwhelmingly going to get a lower attenuation. I mean, no matter what you do, um, or sorry, lower finishing gravity, higher degree of attenuation. And so that switch um, did kind of change the beer when we decided to move in that direction. And it is a little bit leaner, drier, kind of snappier. It, it doesn't have as much malt richness. So that did necessitate kind of reapproaching the hops to kind of make sure the beer was correctly balanced. But um, yeah, I, I think I found that, you know, I really liked, I mean, Carahel's a really cool malt, um, you know, and I, I think a lot of brewers, you know, like that crystal in that kind of 10 range for IPAs, 
because it's a bodybuilding and it can add some sweetness, but it doesn't get you those deeper caramel malt flavors that tend to oxidize and throw off hop character. So it's kind of like the, you know, the one you can get away with um, in a modern IPA. So um, I think that's, you know, that really helps. But I think in the end where we wanted to go was kind of making the beer just going for more drinkability, making it leaner. And so I, I'd imagine that um, we tend to target a, a lower finishing gravity than these other guys. Um, and that's kind of, you know, our, our house approach in general is to make it a little bit leaner and snappier. And I think, you know, that philosophy just carries over in Pilsner Brewing, I think, from, you know, when Matt first kind of honed in on the targets for when we started brewing Pivo, it was this really, you know, kind of leaner, snappier, lower finishing gravity beer. And, um, and then, yeah, I think the malt for us is just kind of working toward that end. Bob, you're pushing a whole bunch of hops into to Timbo and these, uh, you know, talk to me about how that malt uh, piece has developed over the years and, uh, you know, how you've evolved it to where it is now. Yeah, I think it's actually one of the more interesting parts of these beers for us because uh, so we've been making all of our West Coast IPAs are made with lager yeast um, and we've been doing that for probably more than three years now. Um, and so our IPAs and our West coast Pilsners are essentially made very similarly. Um, and Timbo always has its own expression that's different than our IPAs. And the biggest thing is the malt bill is different. Um, and so, you know, our malt bill for Timbo is like 40% raw two row and then 40% Vireman floor malted bow pills, which is not typically in any of our IPAs, um, sorry, 45, 45, and then like 10% carafoam. So I, I bring it to that environment floor malted bow pills is the outlier compared to our IPAs. And Timbo always has this, for lack of a better term, like tropical thiol-y, you know, maybe a little bit sulfury side to it that pushes it to its own thing and its own expression that we love. Um, and it's pushed us down this path where everybody talks about the malt bills and what malt, like the malt flavor or the malt itself is contributing. But I think something that doesn't get talked about as much is the nutrient load that the malt is contributing and how that shifts your fermentations, um, and drives the flavor of the beer, even the flavor of the hops, um, through that shift in fermentation. So you know, we, we don't have the resources to like really deep dive into this, but it is definitely on our sort of like radar for our research is like fan and nutrient levels in different malts contributing to, you know, fermentation expression, but also the sort of like uh, symbiotic relationship of fermentation and hop expression. Um, so, yeah, malt bill definitely matters for us in this. And that the, you know, we contribute a big part of that floor malted bow pills from Vireman is a big part of Timbo. And that's what gives it what you might call a, you know, trademark kind of Pilsner flavor element. I wouldn't even say it's trademark Pilsner. It's evolved into its own thing. It, you know, lager yeast tend to kick more sulfur. I think that that sulfur can sort of transform into a more like tropical thiol expression. It can go more dank. Um, but I think it, it has this potential to be tropical. Um, and so I would, I wouldn't even say Pilsner. It becomes its own thing. Fascinating. Nick, uh, you know, how about you guys? You mentioned adding in some two row into this mix, but, uh, what is, what is that malt and how has that evolution been looking? Yeah. I mean, similar to, to the point Sam made, um, we just get kind of a, like a leaner, crispier, uh, flavor profile that, that helps, you know, the, the hop expression really come through. Um, we also do a lot of like traditional decoction mashing in, in most of our lagers, but we don't, um, do that in West coast Pilsner. We were for a while and occasionally we will, but that kind of malt complexity, uh, in our experience was just a little too clashing to work well in this style. So, um, clashing what do you what is that how would you describe it um just a little too much malt complexity i guess um and you know we want these west coast pilsners to be you know hop forward 
beers, um, but still reminiscent of a Pilsner. Um, to get reminiscent of a Pilsner, you, you know, you need that that lager fermentation and, you know, maybe a little bit of that Pilsner malt. But um, in our experience, it was just a little too overpowering on the malt side. So that's why we started cutting it with uh, more domestic Pilsner or two row. Um, and just kind of as we make more and more of these beers, um, cost wise, it's just made more sense to, to shift those to, to more domestic malts too. Sure. Sure. Let's talk about fermentation in these, uh, you know, are there any peculiarities in the fermentation of these beers given, you know, the, uh, or are they simply fermenting the way that your, you know, typical, you know, Pilsners or other lagers would? Uh, I can dive in there. Um, I mean, I think because you have these sort of like high hopping rates, um, that there is like a buffering to some of the compounds that develop in fermentation. So, you know, if we're not doing a lager that's going to have a high hopping rate, we'll ferment cooler because we kind of want this more like pure, clean expression. Um, and in these beers for us, um, they're so heavily hoppy, which usually means like citrus and fruity as well. Um, we feel like we can ferment them a little bit warmer and there is a little bit more space for that. So warmer isn't hot, but you know, we'll ferment, you know, we'll knock out into a fermenter at 54 degrees. We'll ferment at 56 degrees and then we'll dry hop kind of as warm as we can get it up into the sixties. Um, so where with our other loggers, maybe we're knocking out into the fermenter at 50 or 51 degrees and fermenting at 52 or 53. Um, you know, so maybe we get a little more ester production in the, in the fermentation, but it seems to work well with the hopping at Highland Park Brewery. Uh, you know, where, so where's the line there between, you know, warmer fermentation, maybe being a, a production concern and speeding things up a little bit versus warmer fermentation actually producing some positive flavor contribution to the beer? Or is it a little combination of both? I mean, it depends on what your process is and what you're shooting for. I, I actually embrace warmer fermentation based on modern equipment. I just think that you... Uh, for us, we are more likely to get the flavor attributes that we want from like a very healthy fermentation that then cleans up pretty rapidly, um, at a warmer temperature. Um, you know, so, so I, I, I embrace the warmer temperature as long as you're getting the profile that you want. And I think the majority of your flavor attributes are developed in those first, say six to 10 days of fermentation. So you know, if you can control that during that period, that's the most critical to me. Um, and I think you have the ability to control that more readily, slightly warmer than what maybe traditional fermentation for lagers has been. How about you all, Sam? What is, uh, what does fermentation look like in a West coast style Pilsner? I think we take a somewhat similar approach. Um, it's a little bit warmer than our standard approach where we would usually start in the high 40s and then kind of, you know, keep it around 52 for a primary and then, um, you know, let it, let it come up to the mid 50s for a diacetyl rest. That's kind of like our, our more traditional approach. Um, but, you know, our yeast is really versatile. So we'll go, you know, I mean, the traditional augers I'm doing now at the propagator, I'm, you know, starting at like 45 and capping at like 48 and then kind of like slowly bringing back down at the end of fermentation. So I'm trying more traditional um, approaches and the yeast seems to work like that too. And so, you know, we use the kind of the classic 3470, um, uh, you know, just one of the versions of that. And, you know, those yeasts tend to be very, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say they're like impervious to uh, temperature fluctuations, but they, they don't vary quite as much as some others. And, you know, they're really good. You know, I mean, you can make a cold IPA at 65 if you want or you can firm it in the mid forties and, um, you know, it, it kind of gets the job done. It's a little bit different depending on how you approach it. And I think the main thing for me is that, um, if there is any fruitiness being developed at the higher temperatures, it's very subtle. Uh, and, you know, 
it's not noticeable with um, a new world hot bill, essentially. You know, if anything, it's going to be more complementary. And you are reducing sulfur by fermenting at warmer temperatures, you know, with a, a higher rate of fermentation. So we tend to like, yeah, that slightly warmer fermentation really fast, um, almost, you know, a relatively high levels of oxygen for a lager, you know, more maybe in the, like the 16 PPM range, um, versus, you know, something more traditional would be like maybe eight to nine Germany if you're using compressed air or if that's the approach that you take. And so, um, you know, that yeast is just really rearing to go. It's going faster. And I think that that really helps. And so we like to get primary done in about five days and, um, we're pretty much at terminal gravity by then, um, five to six maybe. And then, um, you know, like to dry hop and then, you know, sit until we clear diacetyl and then chill after that. So, yeah, so I, I definitely think a little bit warm, a little bit faster fermentation helps. It kind of cleans up the sulfur faster and that's not something we're dealing with. And I think looking back on some of the earlier batches, when I tried more traditional colder fermentations, I do feel like depending on the hops, you have to be very careful with hop selection when you're choosing new world varieties. You know, I definitely found, um, you know, we did a really galaxy heavy batch at one point and that took a while to calm down. And I think that there was something going on with the sulfur components in galaxy that you uh, might clash a little bit with higher sulfur from a lager yeast. So that's something that I think you really have to match your, your fermentation profile with um, the hops you're using. And, you know, all hops are going to be different as far as what your approach is, you know, even among American and, you know, uh, New Zealand or, you know, Southern hemisphere, um, Australian hops, like there's going to be some variety there depending on the variety. So you just have to, to really experiment, figure out what works for you. I think, you know, going a little bit warmer is probably a safer bet in general, but you know, you've got to make sure you have a lager yeast that likes that temperature and is really happy. And, you know, I, I do think most lager yeasts, um, do like fermenting a little bit on the warmer side of their range and are pretty happy doing that unless you're going for that uber traditional lager profile in which, you know, keeping more sulfur is like key to that profile. Um, I don't really think there's much of a downside. Uh, it's fascinating what you're saying about hops. And I definitely want to unpack that a little bit more, uh, cause I think that's a really complex and, uh, broad subject to get his next, but Nick, let's talk about your fermentation before we do that. Um, what, what does fermentation look like for you all? Yeah, we, we approach ours a little bit more traditionally, um, on the cooler side. That's just kind of what's worked well for us, what we've liked. So, you know, we'll cool in to the fermenter 45, 46 degrees, let it kind of free rise up to 48, 50. Um, usually dry hopping by day 10, 12, uh, let it kind of free rise a little bit into the fifties and kind of let it clear to acetyl. Um, I think that's just provided a little bit more of a, you know, traditional Pilsner kind of profile to us. And that's just something we've liked. Um, when we do brew cold IPAs, we, we approach the, the warmer lager fermentation. And uh, I think that what one of the key factors that distinguish our cold IPAs and our West Coast Pilsners is that, that fermentation. It's interesting to see each of you all getting to a similar place using slightly different approaches um, and accomplishing, pulling levers in, in different directions to get there. Let's talk about hops now. Um, you know, obviously hops become the focus of this. Uh, you know, if, whenever you put West Coast in the name of anything, it should uh, definitely be hoppy. Um, you know, but as you mentioned, Sam, some hops work better than others within this kind of context. Uh, and some blends of hops are going to interact with each other in better ways and work through that fermentation in a better process. Uh, um, talk to me about designing and building a, a really cohesive and cogent hop bill for a, a West Coast Pilsner or West Coast lager. Well, I think the fun part of approaching hops for a beer like this is that you can kind of have it all. So if you start with noble varieties or, you know, uh, kind of noble family hops in the boil, uh, a lot of the compounds you're going to get from boiling those hops, that's like your traditional German kettle hop flavor. And so that's going to persist even when you do heavy late hops or dry hops with new world varieties. So you kind of get to layer in the character. And, um, and I, I like that approach. And then um, the new German flavor hop varieties like mandarin and melon we really like. And both of those found their way into the final version um of welcome to la and i think those kind of like you get a little bit of both worlds so they have more german vibe to them but they're fruitier um while at the same time being a little more um you know they're not as big and dank so 
they they have this nice round profile and blending in that with some bigger more expressive hops i think gets you a nice blend so you can kind of like layer all the way from starting you know if you want a bitter like for us like spalt select we like um so you know starting with that character getting in some melon and then you know adding in some simcoe um you know or citra mosaic you know you can kind of get it all in there and you get these really interesting hop blends so it's kind of a style that if you know for fans of hops it's like the um for me, the the funnest way to kind of take advantage of the full spectrum of hop flavors that you can get. Are there is there a particular hop that uh, you know you're also again trying to convey the idea of West Coast? You know, is there something or some piece of of that hop build that just conveys that familiarity and, and expectation of West Coast for uh, for drinkers? I definitely think Simcoe is a big part. You know, I always try to get a little bit of that in there. I feel like. Um, just because it's to me like that the first of the kind of modern era of the kind of west coast hop going back you know after the first generation of the sea hops you kind of get in and that's kind of like carrying you into the the modern era of where hops were moving um and then citra as well for sure and um, i like the way citra plays with lager fermentations a lot um mosaic too but i'm a little more careful with mosaic um i think maybe these other guys are um you know have a different approach but um, I have found, yeah, we're, with our approach that um, you have to be a little more careful with it. But, um, you know, it, it just depends on on all the other details, as Bob was saying. Like, you know, the, even the blending of the malt selection is going to have this effect on the perceived hop expression. Nick, what is, uh, what's your hopping uh, approach look like? Yeah, I mean, hops, that's a, an interesting one because I feel like, you know, you could go in a couple different directions, you know, is it, is it a, an Italian Pilsner that has some newer hops sprinkled in? Is it a West coast Pilsner? Um, when we first started playing around with the style, we kind of were tweaking the dry hop on our Italian Pilsner. Um, but I just preferred to keep that kind of its own thing and stick to, to noble hops on the Italian Pilsner. Um, so we, we do, we do a bunch of different things, but our core, Santa Cruz Pilsner, which is our kind of core West Coast Pilsner, is uh, Simcoe hot side and then dry hopped with Mosaic and Nelson. And I think uh, that just provides a, a much more distinctive hop profile than like an Italian Pilsner. Um, but I think it's kind of to each brewer's discretion on kind of what they prefer and um, what works well for them. So that's... That's what we do. Sure. Bob, talk to me about hops. You know, and of course there's Timbo, but you brew a range of these with all sorts of different hop combinations. And uh, um, so, but talk to me broadly about Timbo and then how you, you know, what you've learned from using a such, you know, a wide spectrum of other hops in this kind of beer framework. Yeah. I mean, I think that the hops are contributing multiple facets to this beer. So, you know, when we look at lagers and lagers in general and Pilsners and Hellas and these different styles that are typically pretty low ABV, and for us, they finish very dry with very little residual sugar, we're always looking for ways to fill out the body and give the, the beer structure, even if it is like crisp, snappy, super dry. And one of the ways that I think that we've, you know, have been drawn to is low alpha hops on the hot side. Um, so, you know, a lot of those noble hops and now we're kind of moving more towards like uh, noble sort of uh, heritage, but American grown um, hops, but low alpha hops on the hot side. Um, so, you know, instead of using say one pound of a high alpha hop for bittering, we would use three pounds of a low alpha hop for bittering and you have all this vegetative matter that's giving it sort of like, you know, it sounds like a bad thing like tannins and astringency, but it's building some structure um, in the work that's going to like carry through later on once again to give that weight for the hopping load later on. Um, so that's always been our approach. Most beers that are, you know, beers like Timbo that we end in bow um, are approached that way. Um, with maybe more traditional hops on the hot side, lower alpha, giving it sort of like weight and structure. Um, and then on the, on the cold side, I mean, yeah, we've, we've 
explored to infinity um, different hop combinations. I mean, I think we're <laughs> the one thing that I think is absolutely apparent in these beers is that the lager yeast kicks more sulfur um, and that sulfur can either play well or can't play well with hops. Um, we typically find the hops that we're drawn to ones that are really like, say, bright, tropical, high tone, citrus zest, kind of resiny um, qualities tend to play pretty well with that sulfur. So, you know, we use a lot of citra, a lot of mosaic, um, a lot of Nelson um, in these in these beers. Um, I also think that there is a, a symbiotic relationship that, you know, I, I am the science is beyond me, but there's, I think, a lot of research on sort of building precursors um, on the hot side of for sort of like thiol and sulfur development on the cold side. Um, and I think a lot of those traditional hops help do that um, and then play well with sort of new school, you know, high flavor driven hops on the cold side. Um, so we're, we're thinking about that a lot and playing with it a lot. Um, and I think it, there's a lot to still be learned that people are actively trying to sort of quantify and do research um, to see where these compounds are coming. But I think sulfur plays a part in it and matching hop profiles that play well with sulfur that then become tropical expressions is kind of what we're looking for. I love it. In a practical sense, like what does that hot side hop look like then for you? You know, are these earlier editions or these later hot side editions, you know, and what are the specifically these noble-ish American hops that are classic hops that uh, are giving you some of the kind of foundational character yeah, I mean, I think that we're always trying to sort of like build layers of hop expression so that it's not just this like high tone or like high level that blows off quickly. We want flavor and bitterness and sort of this this journey you go through in the whole experience of the beer. Um, so typically that means we do a 60-minute hop, a 30-minute hop, maybe a 10-minute hop, and then maybe a decent Whirlpool edition. Um, and I think all of those editions sort of contribute varying character, you know, various character traits of texture. Um, so that would, that's kind of the direction on like timing and then the actual varietals. I mean, we found some really cool stuff. Um, I mean, in our Timbo beers, we're using Adina from Roy Farms um, all the time now. Um, so that is this kind of like nice, floral, delicate citrus expression that maybe sits at like uh, maybe like 6% alpha acid. Um, we use Zuper Sazer from Michigan, Michigan-grown Saz quite a bit um, that you know, sits in that same world. We're kind of looking for this like floral and delicate citrus and maybe less of the like herbal, hay, you know, uh, grassy characteristic. Um, we use Sterling from the Pacific Northwest from Crosby quite a bit. Um, so they're, they're kind of, you know, traditional hops that are maybe uh, the cold, the, <laughs> I don't know how to say this. Sometimes our hops from Europe, the supply chain is can be challenging and you don't know what the quality of the hops you're going to get are, where the supply chain for stuff, hops growing in the U.S., uh, what was picked is more likely what you're going to get when the hops are shipped to you at the brewery. And so that's maybe why we have been moving in that direction, because we've had more consistency. Sure. Sam and Nick, are there some uh, like kind of core older school hops or uh, more classic things that you use to kind of ground, you know, and provide a base for some of the, you know, brighter modern hop characters? You want me to go? Um, I mean, not necessarily. I think since our West Coast Pilsners are such hop driven beers, uh, kind of going off what Bob said, knowing kind of what we're getting um what we're knowing to expect from our hops so you know we select pretty much all of our hops 
for the last several years. And I think that plays a whole huge role in uh, kind of knowing what to expect out of our hop expression. Uh, we, we don't, we don't do as much of a kind of layering Ketaline addition like Bob does in our hops. Um, it's just something that we haven't really played around too much with in this style, but um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're at. I think for us, oh, I just, um, you know, yeah, different German varieties that we like, you know, I think I mentioned Spalter Select, um, Hellertau Tradition, uh, and then even going back to some of those other newer German hops too. Um, Kalista is an interesting one that has a, a really nice soft fruity character that can be interesting that some of that comes across when boiled. It's also good as a whirlpool hop. Um, you know, it, it's one of those great hops for building in a nice soft fruity hop character without being over the top, without providing a lot of alpha um, when you want to keep bitterness in check. And I think, yeah, like Bob was saying, you know, boiling enough hop material of lower alpha hops helps fill out the body and the texture. And um, I think provides a nice pleasant bitterness as well versus high alpha varieties. So our approach has always been, yeah, keep the, the high alpha stuff whirlpool or later and, um, and yeah, go with, you know, and we like German stuff. I, I think, you know, um, more than, you know, a lot of brewers, we probably spend more time on German hops and have more relationships with German hop growers. And that's something that uh, Matt's been, you know, put a lot of priority on over the years um, of being over there and, and really keeping a close relationship with, um, with the merchants over there. And I, I think that that does go a long way too, because yeah, depending, you know, if you're not um, paying really close attention to your supply and everything on that end, uh, it's a little bit because it's further away and there's more steps in the process. Um, you might not be getting the exact quality you're looking for. Um, depending on how you want to use the hops versus, you know, stuff from closer by, um, we have a closer connection, you know, with growers here and it's, it's easier for brewers here on the West coast for sure. Um, even though down in, you know, Southern California, we're not super close to hop country, but you know, close enough that I think, you know, you, um, you're more likely to get what you're looking for depending, you know, I, I think with the, with the German hops, yeah, it's, it's almost like, here's what this hop is, you know? Um, so it just depends. Sam mentioned Galaxy adding a kind of clashy character earlier. Are there any other hops that you all have, you know, in practice and in brewing with them found, you know, maybe not the best fit for the way that these beers come together or pose an additional challenge? Yeah. Yeah, I can kind of take that. I think that the, it's like Highland Park Brewery is not opposed to say dank beers that are like lean towards sort of cannabis qualities. Um, but it can go too far. And so I think that lager fermentation already kind of lends some of those like cannabis leaning qualities to the beer. So for us, if the hops are too dank, then you kind of can just have this huge dank expression um, and maybe even, you know, go more towards the onion and garlic. And so it's like, we're not opposed to our beers being dank. We actually like that as an attribute, but maybe not as a dominant attribute. So um, I would say we, you know, we have a soft touch. We try to have a soft touch um, in the more dank hops um, it, for these beers. Is there anything to dry hop process that might vary from your normal dry hop process with these beers? And any issue then with hop creep and other kind of fermentation pieces that uh, that tend to come with pushing heavy hop loads and dry hopping? I mean, the first question is no. We treat them very, very similar. Our lagers and our ales, you know, we are looking for healthy yeast in suspension. We embrace hop creep as a part of the process. Um, and we want healthy yeast to sort of like aid in that process. So whether it's a lager or an ale yeast, we're trying to manage our fermentation profile so that we are harvesting yeast as soon as we possibly can. And we have lots of active, healthy yeast in suspension. Um, so we can kind of get the brightest hop character. Um, I think it's an interesting thing with, uh, uh the topic of hop creep, um, and lager fermentation because lagers have this pretty broad, uh, temperature, you can, you know, from 45 to say 70 degrees, the lager yeast could ferment. 
So if you're dry hopping at a low temperature, you're probably still going to get some refermentation from the enzymes in the hops, um, but they'll just have a slower time cleaning up after themselves. So it might produce additional acetaldehyde, additional sulfur, additional diacetyl at the lower temps. Um, and by that point, there's maybe not tons of yeast and suspension. So you kind of have a harder time having these beers clean up at lower temperatures. Um, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, we played around with, you know, a pretty broad range of dry hop temperatures, uh, on our hoppy lagers. Um, and it always, always above 60 degrees, the beers are better, um, for us and the profile that we're looking for. Um, we go below 55 and we tend to get this melony kind of gordy quality that is we attribute to acetaldehyde in the refermentation in the hop creep. Um, so uh, we kind of just make the assumption that hop creep is going to happen and that we're going to clean up that hop creep faster at warmer temperatures for our dry hopping. So we try to be in the 60 to 65 degree range. We have a slightly different approach i think um temperature wise pretty similar but like i said that we like to drive a pretty fast fermentation and um a high attenuation right off the bat and so i actually tend to see very very little hop creep in almost all of our um lager yeast fermentations uh with you know no matter dry hopping whether it's with ipas cold ipas um you know pilsners dry hop pilsners um and i i don't know exactly why that is maybe it's just a quirk of um, our specific yeast strain but it seems to kind of hit a wall and it's pretty highly flocculent. So we get a ton of yeast dropping out and um, it doesn't really want to go. It's like, it almost doesn't matter what the hopper ID is. Um, you know, I, a couple times I've gotten a little bit, um, but yeah, compared to let's say, you know, making like hazy IPA with like a London three type strain, um, it's way, way less for us. And it's not really I, something that I worry about. Can I ask you, Sam, like what you're, say at the end of that initial fermentation, what a finishing gravity would be and what type of hop creep you could, you would potentially see. Like for us, maybe if we're shooting for Timbo to be 2.7 or 2.8 Play-Doh, uh, we would actually at the end of fermentation be somewhere around say 3.5 to 3.8. And then it'll creep a full Play-Doh down to 2.7 or 2.8. Um, I'm curious what you're experiencing. Yeah, for us, um, usually, you know, looking at kind of the the welcome deli model that we kind of ended up on, um, it's getting down to about maybe 1.8 Play-Doh, 2 Play-Doh um, before dry hopping. And then uh, it might come down another couple tenths, and that's about it. And so we're kind of getting closer to the mids, mid ones, but um, usually dry hopping in the kind of mid-high ones. And, um, you know, and I, I do think that switching to... Um, a Pilsner malt, you know, that's not, not using as much German Pilsner malt, you know, higher fan levels, um, you know, higher enzyme. And so we're just hitting a higher attenuation limit. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. I mean, there's just less for, um, the enzymes that are present to do. Um, and I don't think, you know, and like I, I was mentioning some of the German flavor hops, those can promote a lot of hop creep, um, using those in other, you know, uh, ale fermentation IPAs. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen tons of hop creep with those hops. So I know that they have that potential. It's just that the way, um, our yeast strain, uh, handles that fermentation and the, the, um, the carbohydrate profile that we're building in the mash. Um, that's just how we end up. And so, um, yeah, I mean the beers, you know, it, it's funny that I, you know, fermenting, getting a little bit warmer. Yeah. Dry hopping about 60 degrees seems to work really well for us. And I think that's that like combination of managing sulfur of getting a good expression out of the hops. Um, cause you do get a different expression out of, um, new world hop varieties, dry hop to colder temperatures. It just depends on what you like, you know, and, and everybody has different approach to that. And, you know, so th I don't think there's necessarily any right way, but, um, but yeah, you know, sitting a few days on those hops and then, you know, not getting a whole lot of hop creep and then crashing the beer and getting everything out seems to work well for us. Yeah. We're, uh, kind of in between, I would say, um, we definitely do get a little bit of hop creep, but it's, it's definitely not to the extent that Bob mentioned. Um, we're usually dry hopping around three Play-Doh and the beer will finish at two and a half, two, seven, five, kind of what we're shooting for. Um, our dry hops a little, little different than a normal IPA. Um, most of our IPAs are 
uh, double dry hop, so dry hop two separate times. These we approach a little bit more like our, our West Coast Pales, single dry hop, um, quick, you know, day or two, and then um, kind of lower the temp and get the hops out. And uh, that's that's just worked really well for us. Um, Temperature-wise, we're, yeah, we're in the 50s when we dry hop. That's just kind of what's worked for us and where we like it. We don't, um, it's hard for us to get the temperature up if we don't kind of let it free rise during fermentation. And we just like the, the profile it produces, so. Cool, cool. Well, I, I mentioned it at the top that I want to step back and look at the kind of, you know, semantic and historical and, and nomenclature structure of this. I didn't want it to, to drive the conversation because I think oftentimes we get too wrapped up in the way that we name things and start to, you know, conflate that with what's right and wrong. Um, when oftentimes simply this is just a, a evolution of naming convention to to that. But as you all look at this, and as you were thinking about these beers, and I, and I know you could wax philosophical on this one, Bob, because you're a philosophical type of person. Um, why use the term West Coast Pilsner? What's the, what do you, how do you differentiate between something like West Coast Pilsner and India Pale Lager? Um, or then cold IPA, where, where are the kind of, uh, uh, you know, guardrails on this for you? And wh- how do you, uh, you know, use this, su- you know, this term for these beers in a way that's both explanatory for an audience that helps people buying the beer understand what it is and what it's going to taste like, which is, I think, when you use the term West Coast Pilsner, it does tell people what to expect. Um, but then also manage the kind of historical and traditional expectations that come with referencing a beer tradition like Pilsner. It's a huge, difficult subject. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I got lots of thoughts. (laughs) I think about this quite a bit and I think for us, the goal is that we are a consumer dependent brewery we need people to drink our beer so the goal is that you want to clearly communicate what the expectations are for the beer the consumer is going to buy um and that's i i honestly don't get too hung up on styles it's like if you look at any style that has ever existed it moves in many directions based on region based on access to ingredients and equipment and process um and so, you know, I, I personally push myself to not get too rigid on styles because I just know they're evolving always. So I always put it in the context, how can we as clearly as possible communicate, communicate to our consumers what they're going to experience? Um, so as I thought about the, you know, Timbo pills, um, you know, the, the term IPL to me, didn't communicate what that beer was. Because if I was to think about India Pale Lager, I'm thinking, okay, it's an India Pale Ale, but made with lager yeast. So maybe it's 7% alcohol, it has a certain malt bill, you know, it's approached in a multitude of ways. And I think our approach for these beers has always been for them to be more drinkable, lower ABV, um, which then I think pulls them away from the IPA to something else. Um, and I think even as it relates to IPA, I've always resonated with the term West Coast because in my head, at least, it is sort of this like brighter, sort of like modernized version of IPA that was focusing on new hop varietals, new expressions of hop, new process in hopping. So West Coast, for me, encompasses like a broad term of sort of uh, a new approach to IPA. Um, So as we were thinking about this beer, it's like, well, the base is kind of a Pilsner. That's probably the best way for us to communicate that to our customers. But really, we're taking this West Coast approach. Um, And it's, it's tricky. I mean, I think we've trained our customer base to know what West Coast Pilsner is. But it's funny. It's like we'll take Timbo, well, maybe not now, but at one point we'll take it to a festival on the East Coast. And it's like 
people were almost like mad at us for calling it a West Coast Pilsner. And I'm just like, we're just trying to communicate to customers to give them clear expectations. It's like, if you have a better term to call it, I'm more than happy to embrace it. Uh, we're just trying to, you know, communicate better. Well, when we were working on what we were going to, you know, when we finally started distributing Welcome to LA, um, we decided to go West Coast Hoppy Lager instead of West Coast Pilsner. And in retrospect, I don't know, maybe that wasn't uh, as good of a choice, you know, because I think that maybe people do cue in on the Pilsner-like qualities of it. And Hoppy Lager is a little bit more ambiguous um, as to what it means. Um, but, you know, maybe not. I don't always know, you know, I, I'm probably not the best person from like the consumer facing standpoint always to say this is how, you know, your average consumer is going to perceive uh, what this beer is going to be like. And I think for us, um, it's a little bit different um, than um, for Highland Park, for sure, I would say, Bob, because, you know, we're getting a lot of that beer out. It's on a grocery store shelf. You know, it's a different distribution model. And so the way we communicate with our consumers is a little bit different where, you know, yeah. you're selling most of that beer um, directly to the consumer and, um, you know, or or more so or just in more controlled distribution channels, I guess, um, versus a more broad market approach. And so um, at different scales, maybe the approach is a little bit different where, you know, you like said, you know, you kind of like train your customers to like understand what you're trying to get across. And it's a conversation you're having more directly with them. And so um, I think that gets a little bit harder on a larger scale. And it's something that we haven't quite figured out 100%. But I do agree that I think West Coast Pilsner is probably overall the best way to approach that, um, given the different options out there. Um, Especially like, you know, I've seen some brewers take Italian Pilsner and add it basically make West Coast Pilsner and call it Italian Pilsner, um, adding in different hop varieties and that i i don't know that worries me a little bit actually um just because i like keeping the italian profile as like that is a specific kind of like noble or noble derivative but like dry hop german pilsner um but you know if you start getting into the all the new hop varieties we're talking about i think it fundamentally makes a different beer that doesn't really have that profile anymore um and so that's going to probably lead to some confusion out there so that's my plea to brewers out there right now is that's, you know, that's why I think like making West coast a thing is, um, you know, I, I don't know how brewers outside of our region feel about that. And that's always something, right? Like how we took new England IPAs and we said, Oh, well we have to call them hazy IPAs because you know, our customers here in California don't understand what a new England IPA is and you know, they can't make that connection, but it's hazy, it's different, it's juicy or whatever. So we had to come up with different ways, um, to let our customers know that this was a fundamentally different kind of IPA, um, than what we were brewing before. So, um, you know, I don't know, maybe as the style, um, continues to evolve and more brewers in different regions approach it, you know, they may, you never know it, these things kind of take on a mind of their own, right. As far as like the cultural conversation that's happening and we're not always in charge. We can call it what we want, but you know, if it really hits for somebody else with a different name, then you know they might run with it, and then it's out of our control. Um, but uh, but yeah, I guess we'll see. It's it's kind of exciting as far as you know, um, spreading around a little bit more and and making a lot of cool beers. That hopefully you know, I love to make and drink these types of beers, so it's really cool to see um, more people doing it. Do you have any thoughts on this one, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I I agree a hundred percent with both what Bob and Sam said. Um, I think like when I think of a IPL, I think of kind of like an old school, you know, caramel malt, uh, six and a half, seven percent, um, lager. And, you know, these beers aren't that cold IPAs are, are different too. They're fermented differently. The malt build is totally different. Um, when we first started brewing these, we were calling them hoppy lagers or dry hot pilsners. Um, but we wanted a way to kind of differentiate it from like an Italian Pilsner um, and just kind of West Coast Pilsner made the most sense. And uh, to me, that kind of nails it right on the head. It's kind of exactly what it is. Um, part of its marketing, you know, trying to portray it to our customers, like Bob mentioned. And um, that's just been the best way for us to really let people know what, what they're getting. Sure. I guess if you want to like look at, what are essentials in a, a name if Anheuser-Busch can call a 
beer brewed with, you know, rice syrup, a pilsner, then uh, you know, certainly American brewers can make some hoppy, dry hopped West Coast approaches to pilsner and uh, and use the same kind of term. Uh, I've got plenty of opinions on that myself, but this isn't about me. This is about you guys. <laughs> um, you know, but I think you're right. There's an evolution of language that happens here. Maybe this isn't the final name for it. Maybe this is a, a transition and something that works now to explain these things. We'll, we'll see where they end up. And, uh, you know, but I agree with you, all of you that it's a very compelling approach to making beers that I like to drink and that more drinkers are finding themselves attracted to. It's also a nice way to bring that scale of drinkability to a place where people can enjoy those hop flavors and enjoy them, enjoy more than one beer in a session uh, or a few beers and not in, you know, still uh, you know, be able to keep drinking them while enjoying those hops in a way that seems to be more compelling and work better than the, the session IPA kind of 4% ale approach did, uh, which had a hard time, I think, you know, making beers that really connected with people. These are beautiful things. Um, thank you guys for joining me on the podcast and talking to me about West Coast Pills. AccuBrew is an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information brewers need to produce consistent results. CanCraft's design and aluminum specialists are here to support your business every step of the way. GD's microchannel condensers use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers. And, of course, your magazine subscription directly supports our ability to bring you this podcast every week. Go to beerandbring.com, click on the subscribe button, let us know the content matters to you. And, of course, if you're interested in attending our Brewers Retreat and getting tickets early, become an all-access subscriber. Now, um, all three of you, maybe we'll start with you, Bob. If people want to learn more about Highland Park, where do they find you guys? Uh, Timbo and all the other West Coast Pilsners that you all brew. Uh, probably Instagram. Highland Park Brewery, uh, at Highland Park Brewery, uh, you know, we're also have a website, hvb.la. Um, yeah, we're smack dab in the middle of Los Angeles. So adjacent to downtown, our original brewery is about four and a half miles northeast of downtown LA in Highland Park. Um, and most of our beer is bought and consumed direct from us, though we do do a little bit of distribution, but... Um, yeah, visit us in Chinatown, downtown Los Angeles. How about you, Nick? If people want to learn more about Humble Sea, where do they where do they find you all? Yeah, our uh, Instagram is just at Humble Sea. Um, our original uh, tap room is in Santa Cruz on the west side. We have a tap room in Pacifica, um, just outside of San Francisco, and then uh, a tavern up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, just about fifteen minutes away from the original brewery. Uh, we're in a handful of specialty craft beer bars throughout the state so um can look there cool sam if people want to learn more about the beers that you make where do they find you just uh you know firestonebeer.com firestone beer on social media um firestone uh underscore propagator um on instagram is a good way to kind of see more specifically what's going on here um at the propagator which is in venice beach versus our you know main brewery in paso robles on the central coast and um yeah, I mean that's a that's about it. You know, we're we're all over the place, so you know, not not hard to find uh, comparatively, I would say. Sure, sure. Well, Bob, Nick, Sam, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for having us. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.